Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. comes to us in the form of a story, the story of a God who endures a suffering so great on behalf of those who are at enmity with him um, that they and history are changed by his self-sacrificial act. Um, history hangs on, uh, on the gospel, and the gospel story is lived out over and over and over again in the life of each person who is then transformed by it. And so we each become living testimonies, uh, and our redemption stories contain the power to awaken those around us to the possibility of hope and transformation. One such story is the one that we are going to uh, enter into today, and it is the life-transforming story of Gary Bykirk. Uh, April 1st, 2020 marked the 50th anniversary of the battle that uh, changed this Green Beret medic's life forever. It earned him the military's highest honor, the Medal of Honor. Today, he is one of only 69 living recipients of the Medal of Honor. He is the chaplain of the Medal of Honor uh, Society. And he is joining us today to talk not only about his story, but about God's story. Bykirk says this, my story is God's story. The medal is not about me. This medal is about him. Without God's grace, I wouldn't have been able to survive Vietnam. Without his forgiveness in my life, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. Without his love, I wouldn't have healed from my wounds. This medal is ultimately about him, and I wear it for his honor. Up next, uh, my conversation with Gary Bykirk. We'll be right back. Joining me now, uh, my brother in Christ, Gary Bykirk. Gary, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Um, thank you. It's an honor to be able to be here with you. So that is not a word that um, I suspect you use lightly. Um, let's talk about honor, um, and let's talk about um, what that word means to you and maybe how your understanding of it has changed through your life experience. Yeah, yeah that uh, actually every time I do use it, I... I I go back to um, some time that I spent in the cave uh, in New Hampshire when I found out I was being awarded the Medal of Honor, and uh, one of the I took a Bible in that cave into the cave with me, and one of the verses that I found when I um, was a verse in Psalm forty-nine, verse twenty. It says, "Man that is an honor and understands not is like a beast that perishes." And uh, I began to say, okay, God, I guess you're going to be teaching me about what honor, about what this Medal of Honor means, about what life means, 
about what all I went through in Vietnam. What does that mean? And, and God did teach me, uh, as you said in the introduction, that I've come to understand that, um, that Jeremiah says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might or the rich man in his riches. But if you're in a glory, glory in this, that you know me, the Lord. And God taught me while I was in that cave for 18 months, uh, and he's been teaching me every day, that honor is all his. Honor is about him. Uh, honor is about um, walking with him, glorifying him, as we continue to spend our time on our knees, looking to serve and love him and love others. To me, that's what honor is, loving others for his glory. We're talking with Gary Bykirk this morning. The book is Blaze of Light, the inspiring true story of Green Beret medic Gary Bykirk, Medal of Honor recipient. The author is Marcus Brotherton. Um, the book is excellent. The story is very well told. Um, take us back, if you will, to, I don't know if you want to go back to the dawn of April 1st, 1970, or if you want to take us back a little bit further than that so that we can understand where you were on the dawn of April 1st, 1970. Yeah, I was a, uh, a member of a 12-person 12, 12 team, <clears throat> member of the Green Beret team, and we lived in the jungles of Vietnam. Um, I lived with a group of mountain yards, uh, which was a tribal group in Vietnam. Um, There's about 2,300 mountain yards and 12 Americans, and we were in the jungles in the highlands. And uh, for me, that experience was life-changing <clears throat> because when I first arrived in the jungle, uh, I befriended a 15-year-old mountain yard boy. And in the mountain yard culture, anybody that was 12 years old or older was an adult. They were warriors. We had a 12-year-old that was an M60 machine gunner. And I, I befriended this 15-year-old because I told him that his name was Dale. I said, I want you to teach me how to survive in the jungle, Dale, because I hate snakes and I'm afraid of tigers. And he laughed at me and he said, I don't want to teach you how to survive. He said, I'm going to teach you how to live in the jungle. He said, because we get our life from the jungle. He said, I want you to be able to live. He said, because fear narrows your focus. I want you to be able to see things out there that can provide you life. And for the time that I was with Dale in those mountain yards, Dale taught me about what it really means to live. Um, on April 1st, our camp <clears throat> came under siege, and we were surrounded for over 30 days by 10,000 of the enemy. I was shot uh, numerous times. But because of the love that Dale and I had for each other and the bond that we committed to one another, Dale immediately found me when I was shot and carried me throughout the battle. Everything that I did, helping people, continuing the fight, I did because Dale carried me because of the love that we had for one another. It was his strength and his love that helped me overcome the fear and my weakness. And we heard a rocket coming in and Dale threw me on the ground, laid on top of me, and was killed by that rocket explosion. So my time with the mountain yards was a time where I really found a home <clears throat> that in the midst of this primitive jungle tribe, I found a home because I found what it meant to really love one another. And um, it was a, a very life-changing experience. My time with the mountain yards taught me so much 
We had a saying in Vietnam that to really live, you must almost die. To those that fight for it, life has a meaning the protected will never know. Dale taught me what it really meant to live. And I used to teach these life lessons to my students because I worked as a middle school counselor for 33 years. And one of the first life lessons that I taught them was this, to really live, you must almost die. And I said, I'm not talking about dying physically, but I'm talking about if you want to really live, you have to learn to die to yourself because life is more than just surviving. Life is living. And as Jesus said, if you want to really live, lose your life for his sake, serve others, love others. I began to learn that lesson in that mountain yard village in Vietnam. I think it's fair to say, uh, Gary, that the United States of America was not um, an easy nor hospitable place uh, to which to return um, from your experience in Vietnam. Um, You were physically broken. Um, uh, The book describes, you know, your experience at that point as confused. You returned to a United States that was uh, certainly embittered toward um, soldiers like yourself. and you didn't just return with a wounded body. You returned, you know, with a soul wound, with a wounded heart. When we come back from the break, um, I'd love for you to share with our audience um, about, you know, about the time in the cave. I know that we started our conversation there, but it feels like that is really significant. And it's from the cave that you emerged to go meet the president of the United States in Washington, D.C. to receive the nation's highest honor. Um, it's quite a story. Uh, I am talking with Gary Bykirk. We are talking about his life, his testimony, uh, chronicled in a book, Blaze of Light, the inspiring true story of Green Beret medic Gary Bykirk, Medal of Honor recipient. The book is by Marcus Brotherton, and Gary and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Gary Bykirk. Um, I think I'll just start by uh, saying that, you know, Gary and I, because we're both believers in Jesus and have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ, are going to spend eternity together. And so we're going to have um, uh, extended opportunities to celebrate the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his redemptive power. Um, and we want to share that with you today. And so, uh, Gary, it's my uh, it is my honor. I'm now using that word uh, very intentionally with you. Um, it's my honor to uh, have you share your story and your life experience with our audience today. Um, we like to call Wednesday Witness Wednesday, and um, you're bearing witness through your testimony to the world, the ways in which you have borne witness now for more than 30 years to to junior high school students, um, you know, seeking to invest in them um, the wisdom of your own life's experience uh, is, is is such a great gift to the next generation of Americans. Um, let's pick up. Um, let's pick up with with the day maybe that you decided. I don't know. Did you decide to go to walk to a cave? Um, was it a decision? Um, t- talk about that. Talk about seeking to forget and instead finding something else. Well, I had gone in. Uh, up into northern New Hampshire because I had uh, I came home hoping to find some peace and some healing and some love. But as you mentioned, and as many people might be familiar with, when I came home, all I found was anger. I found hate. 
based on guilt. Um, all the things that uh, happened to me in Vietnam bothered me, but this added hate and guilt that I received from my own country just made everything that I was feeling worse. And so I, I, I left college and I wanted to go somewhere that I thought that I could find some peace, some solace. And uh, I chose to go up into northern New England, uh, the White Mountains. I was riding one day and I, I found this uh, parking lot that's an Appalachian Mountain Trail. I pulled over and I started walking and um, I heard this rushing sound like a, a waterfall. And I went over to it and it was just a beautiful, beautiful waterfall coming down from the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And I said, wow, this is beautiful. And it was in that place that I eventually found a, uh, a place that became home to me again, much like the village in Daxiang in Vietnam. But it was a place where I could find solitude. I was, I, one of my life lessons was that there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. I was alone in the States. I was lonely because I had walls around me, because I was afraid of people. I was afraid of letting people get to know me, people getting to see what I saw myself. And when I went into the woods and into the cave, I found solitude. And solitude was is a is a place that I found where I could be open. I took, took my Bible with me and I said, God, let me get to know you more here in this cave, in, this, in these woods. I remember making a prayer in September of 73. I said, God, I'm giving you my life back. Everything that I am, I want to put in your hands because you gave me my life in Vietnam. I'm giving my life back to you. Two weeks after I made that prayer in September, of 73, I was told I was being awarded the Medal of Honor. So in this place of solace and quietness, where I could reflect and try to heal, I said, God, I'm yours. And God gave me the Medal of Honor. Um, it, was a, it was a beautiful experience uh, to be able to find that solace. Because so many of us seek uh, a solace. You know, um, when we hurt, we look for a place to go where we can just feel different. And many of us find caves to go into where we can try to feel safe. And when I went into my cave there, I, I shut down, believing that if I could just forget, I'd get better. But when I was in the woods there and in the cave with God, I learned that forgetting is not getting better. Getting better is finding someone to come into that cave with you, finding someone who can love you, who can give you a reason to hope, and give you a purpose for life. I found out when I was in that cave for 18 months that forgetting is not getting better. Getting better is having someone come into your life. And it was God that came into my life at that time, along with a beautiful young lady that I met in the nearest town, Lancaster. She came into my life, wanted to marry her, but she said, you got to come out of the cave. And uh, so I came out of the cave and she's been the heart, the hands, the soul of God in my life for 45 years. She's been a wonderful, wonderful partner. But uh, that's a little bit of my cave story. Forgetting is not getting better. Getting better is finding someone to come into that cave with you, to love you, to give you a reason to hope, and to give you a purpose for life. And that's what God wants to do with all of us. He wants to come into our caves that we've built for ourselves, built with walls of hurt and anger, he wants to change all that. He wants us to come out of our cave and walk with him. 
I love that you um, make reference to your wife, Lolly. Uh, We certainly want to have a little shout out to Lolly today. Um, This is not a journey that uh, that we walk alone. Um, It's a journey that we walk in fellowship with the Lord. Absolutely. But it's also a journey that um, that we walk from brokenness to wholeness and from um, from fear to life, um, from just surviving to really living. Um, There are companions uh, uh, on this journey. I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about um, your service as the chaplain to the Medal of Honor Society. There there's such a small group of people who um, who have been valorized in this way. Um, and so can you just share a little bit of that with us as well? Mm-hmm. well um, there's been many times that I've um, been humbled on my knees. Uh, serving as a chaplain among such a group of men as the Medal of Honor recipients uh, is a, a place that uh, I have to definitely remain humble. Um, but it's not, it's really not that um, it's not that difficult if I if I just remember that when I put my medal around my neck that there's no room for self that this medal is not about me it's it's about everyone who's served everyone who's put on a uniform it's it's not about one person who did one thing on one day it's about millions of men and women who do acts of service and sacrifice every day. And we as a group of 69 men who are still alive, all of us realize that, that that it's not about us. There's a certain humility that comes to a person when they put that medal around their neck. And it's, it's very ironic because all of us did the things that we did, not because we were seeking glory to ourselves. We did it because we're seeking someone else's benefit. We're seeking the welfare for someone else. We care for someone else more than ourselves. But then in doing so, all of a sudden, we have this honor placed on us. And that's a difficult burden to care. How am I going to make this a part of my life? How do I, what do I do now with this honor? And there's a certain humility that exists among the men that wear the Medal of Honor. And it's, there's also a certain amount of faith that's there. Not all of them are Christians, but all of them would be sure to say, I believe there's something greater than me. I believe there's something greater in this life than myself because I was willing to die for it. And my ministry has been to try to help each of those men see that what they value, what they believe in, is something that's been placed in them by a God who loves them. And I try by my life and by my words and by my actions towards them to let them know and to see that it's Jesus that has placed that service, that value of caring for something more than yourself. It's Jesus that has placed that in their hearts. And that's what motivated them. It's the love of Christ. My conversation uh, partner is Gary Bykirk. The book is Blaze of Light, the inspiring true story of Green Beret medic Gary Bykirk, Medal of Honor recipient. The author is Marcus Brotherton. Um, It is uh, a testimony to Christ. Um, and it is beautifully written, uh, beautifully retold by Marcus Brotherton. Um, uh, Gary, thank you so much, not only for sharing with us today, but for um, for carrying the burden of, of the Medal of Honor um, and carrying it in a way that um, helps others to understand what honor is and what it means to 
honor God above all. Um, you are a, a delightful inspiration on this Witness Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. God bless you. Thank you for all that you do for our Lord. Hmm. I, I just, um, I received that. Thank you so much, my brother. We'll be right back. So I met uh, our next guest, John Ashman, at the Central Union Mission in Washington, D.C. a handful of years ago. If you have read uh, my book, Speak the Truth, then you know I had an experience outside the mission on that day uh, before our meeting inside began that that changed me deeply. Uh, And then I met John Ashman when I went inside and the meeting began. And he told me things about our invisible neighbors that shattered several layers of uh, assumption and apathy and... um, pried some scales off my eyes uh, in terms of how people, many, many people are living in the United States of America uh, right now and just how much help they need. So the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions is what it was called at the time. It is now CityGate Network and up next, CityGate's president, John Ashman. Colossians 3.13 says, as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Really, God? This is Max Licato. Begin the process of healing. How? We'll keep no list of wrongs. Pray for your antagonists rather than plot against them. Hate the wrong without hating the wrongdoers. Turn your attention away from what they did to you to what Christ did for you. Outrageous as it may seem, Jesus died for them too. If he thinks they are worth forgiving, they are. Does that make forgiveness easy? No. Quick, seldom, painless? Forgiveness vacillates. It has fits and starts, good days and bad, anger intermingled with love, irregular mercy. We make progress only to make a wrong turn, step forward and fall back. But it's okay. As long as you're trying to forgive, you're forgiving. It's when you no longer try that bitterness sets in. So keep trying. Keep forgiving. This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, John Ashman. He is the president of CityGate Network. You can find CityGate Network at citygatenetwork.org. John, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, and good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's talk about the um, the transformation of uh, of gospel rescue missions, which many people listening will be familiar with, uh, into CityGate Network. Well, we were started in 1906 as the National Federation of Gospel Missions. Uh, missions came across the Atlantic in the early 1800s, and uh, and by 1870s, we had missions starting in New York City and working their way across the country. They were sort of independent and doing their own thing, and somewhere along the line, somebody said, we need to get these organizations under control, and so they started this federation. Salvation Army was part of it back in those days. And in 1913, the Salvation Army kind of went their own way. And so this federation became the International Union of Gospel Missions, changed its name in 2000 to the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions. But a lot of of philosophical changes in the organization and where missions were had us change our name to CityGate Network in 2018. Um, For people who might not, you know, be thinking about City Gate and where that language might come from. Um, what does that language mean to you? 
Well, for us, uh, what what we look at was back in in Bible days, every city had a a, a wall and, and gates, and and usually there was an outer gate and an inner gate. And when you were coming or going, that inner gate, uh, the area between the inner gate and the outer gate, because kind of became a vestibule and even a microcosm of the city. Inside the city gate, you could find immediate needs. You know, there's there was commerce. Court was held there. City leaders gathered there. You remember Abraham and Lot sat in the city gate, not at the city gate, because it wasn't just a doorway. It was an area. And so as we look at the needs of what cities uh, should have these days, is that place of refuge, the place where you, you start to find the services you need to move forward, whether you're a stranger, whether you're somebody who's been living in the city. And a lot of folks say, well, isn't the church the city gate? And we say, it could be, it should be. But I know a lot of cities where churches downtown are padlocked until 10 or 11 on a Sunday morning. Or you have a lot of families who say to their loved ones, you go to that church and we'll never talk to you again. And then others say, well, shouldn't the government be the city gate? And uh, that's also a possibility. But I know folks that won't go to the government because they're told you go to the government, they'll take your kids away. Or you go to the government and uh, you'll be on the next plane to Mexico City, as the case may be. And so we look at what is provided by these city missions all over North America and say, we are the new city gate for, uh, for those who are coming and need life-changing services, life-transformation services. I'm talking with John Ashman. He's the president of CityGate Network. You can find them at citygatenetwork.org. John, um, you uh, opened my eyes in uh, in some very radical ways uh, a handful of years ago when I heard you um, just share stories um, about individuals whom you had met along the way um, through your ministry. And so I would um, uh, I know that we can't we can't cover all of the issues and concerns, but some of the things that I recall from that day um, were stories about, you know, mothers with children and how a woman with children ends up um, in in the kind of desperate circumstance um, that would that would put her on the doorstep of uh, of a city gate network um, facility group organization, outreach mission. Uh, and so, you know, everything from domestic violence to mental illness um, to being an immigrant, uh, I mean, the list is just so long that leads to the the kind of poverty that leads to homelessness. Can you just tell us a story? Well, what we're seeing these days is a, a shift from what was traditionally uh, known as the typical homeless uh, person. And that was a 60-some-year-old male who either had a problem with addiction or uh, some mental illness showing up at a mission. And that has changed. Uh, we, these were people usually who had uh, functionality at some point in their life, and they came to a mission to get their life under control. You know, we, we I'll just say right out of the gate here, we believe the Bible makes it clear that life comes with a reset button. If any person be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things can pass away and everything can become new. And so that's why a city mission or a rescue mission 
is a place that this happens. So uh, the, that typical male person coming into a mission uh, changed. And what we're seeing now is, is we're, we're getting a lot of family units and the majority of the family units are women with children. And so we have uh, opened a lot of women and children's centers. I was at a mission not long ago where someone showed up and they said, I've been sleeping uh, in a car for the last 10 months and it was parked outside. That was amazing. It was even running. And, uh, and we thought, well, then why don't you come in and see what, uh, what we can offer here in the mission? And um, I went out with the director and opened the door, expect to get a suitcase and there were five kids in the car as well, looking to, uh, is this where we're staying tonight, mommy? And uh, it, th that just kind of breaks your heart because these kids come in and they have no idea where they are, what's going on in the, in the rest of the, the lives of the people who are there. And so we're, we're seeing this more and more. People who um, think they have a stable relationship and find that they don't, job situations change that um, eminent domain and cities change that where people have to go from one place to another because their apartment complex has taken over. We used to um, wait and see people coming to the doors. In recent years, uh, I've had a director tell me, we have people making calling to make reservations at a mission because they have no place to go and no idea what comes next. When we come back from our break, John Ashman and I are going to continue this conversation and we're going to address some concerns um, now uh, that have emerged in this COVID-19 era. Continuing my conversation in just a moment with John Ashman from CityGate Network. You can find them at citygatenetwork.org. Continue my conversation with John Ashman. He is the president of CityGate Network. You can find them at citygatenetwork.org. Um, John, uh, help us understand the reality uh, that people who are homeless uh, are experiencing now in the midst of COVID. Well, when COVID-19 swept across the country, uh, almost overnight, it seemed, um, we, we saw missions that were already very crowded, uh, needing to uh, accept even more people or getting people with greater needs. Uh, for example, prisons uh, opened their doors and released people that they thought were um, the least violent offenders and sent them out on the street. And all of a sudden they're there with no place to go and they show up at the door of one of our missions and say, I need a place for tonight and I need some food. Or you have young kids coming into a, a mission uh, mom sent us down here. There's no paycheck anymore and there's nothing in the house to eat. She says, you'll take care of us. So that brought more people into organizations and missions and our facilities that needed to do social distancing. Uh, in many places, we reached out to Christian camps and conference centers where they had uh, beds that weren't being used and kitchens that weren't with the ovens that weren't turned on at that point because all retreats and even summer camp in many places have been canceled. So we have some of those partnerships that are going on. But as you can imagine, um, a mission is a very unique kind of ministry because it's, it is open 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, and they're even busier during the holidays. And so you have... 
uh, all of the staff, and that has been a problem because they sent staff home that were uh, over a certain age or maybe susceptible, and so they've needed more volunteers. So a lot of missions have been working around the clock with core staff for 15, 20 weeks now, and it's uh, it's been tough on them, but they have gotten by. And something that's very uh, amazing right now, because I'm on a call uh, every, well, it used to be three times a week, now it's down to once a week, which is good news, but it's with the the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, and it's with HUD and HHS, that's Health and Human Services, and the CDC, which everybody knows, and FEMA and the Red Cross Salvation Army. The White House even jumps onto the call every once in a while. And, and that good news is that uh, the homeless sector has not been hit with COVID-19 to the extent that they initially thought it would. They thought it would be disaster out there with COVID-19 spreading through the homeless community. Uh, we jumped on this very early with our 300 organizations all over North America. Uh, the Red Cross jumped on it early, uh, Family Promise did, groups like that. And there have only been about 150 deaths in the homeless community since COVID-19 came into our lives. So John, um, when when you talk with what I'll just describe as as comfortable Christians, um, people whose whose lives are even in the midst of COVID fairly comfortable, um, can you? I don't know. Get us off of of sort of a, a settled, comfortable spot, and um, and help us even have a heart's desire to not just see our invisible neighbors, but actually engage with them, and then maybe describe a first step in that direction. Well, most Christians who have spent any time in the Bible know that God has something to say about the poor, and Jesus said a lot about the poor. But we go about our daily lives until all of a sudden we have an intersection with somebody. And maybe that's somebody holding a placard at a at a uh, a stop sign or a traffic light, and, and you look there and you say, I'm, that's not for me today, or you kind of make sure you're in the wrong lane. And, uh, and the point we always try to make with people is these are folks who just want a conversation. They certainly, there are many who want your money, and there are some charlatans out there among them, but there are people who just need you to stop long enough to say, what can I do for you? How are you doing today? Uh, when I first started in this, um, this role, I was um, in a southern town, I think it was in Tennessee, which I think is your home state, and uh, we were, uh, I was driving and uh, looking for a particular mission, one of our members there, and I um, saw somebody walking on the other side of the street, and I thought, it's safe for me, remember that I'm new into this, and I rolled down my window and I yelled, do you know where such and such a mission is? And he looked at me and said, I'm going there right now. And he ran over to the car and came around to the passenger side. And uh, all of a sudden I was, oh no, what, what's, what have I gotten into here? And he got in the car with me and uh, he says, let's go up this way and we'll turn. And I'm thinking, is this safe? What's going to happen? And as we got closer, uh, he started pointing out the different places. He says, that's a job site. I can't get a job there because I can't read. That's a job site. He was, he was going on. And then he looked at me and, uh, you know, I, I picked it out with peripheral vision. And, and uh, I, he said, can I ask you something? I thought, uh-oh, here comes the request for money. And he says, can you help me buy some underwear? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it hit me, uh, 
oh my goodness, this is, you know, he's, he's not going to hit me up for cash. You know, he's not going to ask me for liquor or whatever. So we went to, I, I learned all about him and all of his issues. We went to a Walmart, we shopped for underwear and he's been a friend for a long time, but these are people out there who, who need help. We, we've, we've moved this idea away from emissions is all about just a food, clothing, shelter, or an addiction recovery program. And we have it down to eight different S words. And I'll go through these real quickly. Save, that means you're saving somebody's life. Regeneration happens in any of these S words. But when you take a needle away from somebody who's about ready to overdose, you save the life. Sober, no longer controlled by al alcohol or or, or drugs, depressants, stimulants, stable, that's mental health, physical health, schooled, uh, enough education to get by, skilled, um, that means not just jobs, but helping people with careers. A job is parking a car or washing dishes. We want to get people into skilled areas. Secure, getting paid for your work, settled, that means you have your own safe place to return every night and serving, giving back to the community through missional living. So that's what missions are doing these days, working with individuals who, who, who really matter to God and should matter to you. John Ashman, thank you. Um, thank you so much um, for the influence you have been personally in my own life. Um, I, I'll, I will never forget the day that I spent at, uh, at Central Union Mission in Washington, D.C., uh, and the influence you had on me there. Um, thank you for what you do every single day through CityGate Network um, for our invisible neighbors and for helping us to see those who we, um, on most ordinary days, uh, choose not to see. So helping us help. Thank you for helping us choose to see them. It's a CityGate Network. You guys can find it at citygatenetwork.org. John, thank you so much. You bet. We'll be right back. How have you been changed by an intersection of your life with the life of another person, particularly a person in need, particularly a person um, who just lacks access to something as simple as a telephone or a way to replace their socks or uh, on and on and on. The list is very long. Um, so let's just be mindful today that uh, God extends grace to us and then sends us to be extensions of his grace to others. Um, let's, let's have our eyes and our hearts open today. Um, to those opportunities where God might be leading us into the life of another person in order for his grace to be extended uh, more and more. If you have uh, relationships with people who are homeless, then you know uh, many of them are Christians. And so let me encourage you to not just pray for, but stop every once in a while and pray with one of your brothers and sisters in Christ along life's way who are currently um, living really in extreme poverty, even here in the United States of America. The homeless population includes lots of kids. And my friends, we can do better than that. All right, uh, let's, uh, let's turn our hearts toward the world that God so loves. Let's be sure we go into the world as those who are sowing the peace of God. And if you haven't done so already, get into the word of God before you go out there into the world. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.